Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 165, and it's essentially a continuation of episode 164, where we introduced the NBC White Paper, which was a television report engineered by Walter Sheridan of NBC and covering the Garrison investigation and the Clay Shaw trial. It aired on June 19, 1967, and it was a major blow to Garrison's efforts. As we explained in episode 164, thanks to the Fairness Doctrine, which was firmly in place in 1967, Garrison petitioned the FCC and was granted 30 minutes of prime time on NBC in order to provide a rebuttal to the American people and to the public at large. We present the audio from that rebuttal in today's episode. Whatever you think of Garrison or the investigation, it's hard to dispute the fact that he was a courageous individual. Men like Garrison fight back. And that is exactly what he did. The NBC white paper contained a fairly long list of specific allegations against Garrison and his team, and we will recapitulate that list for your reference in a moment. Even though the time was granted to Garrison in order to specifically rebut those charges, Garrison made the decision to use the time to lay out a more conceptual framework to the American public. To go on the offensive and avoid playing defense related to the specific charges leveled against him and his staff. It would be an appeal to the American public regarding the investigation's higher cause and the forces that were at work to destroy it. Surely this approach would be the one to restore a sense of clarity and purpose to the activities of the DA's office in New Orleans and would avoid drawing attention to allegations of dubious evidence and questionable methods. In modern corporate America, or today's American political environment, any good communications specialist would recommend a similar approach. So you might say Garrison was ahead of his time in that regard. He would decide to deal with the false statements of the witnesses using a different apparatus. The apparatus of a grand jury subpoena. And the golden opportunity extended to each of them in order that they might repeat what they said on the NBC special and then be charged with perjury, if Garrison could prove that their statements were incorrect. And only this time, it would be under oath. In short, would they testify at the grand jury and validate the statements made on the NBC program or not? The allegations leveled against Garrison and his staff in the NBC white paper were extensive, and they were primarily the basis for allowing Garrison to have rebuttal time. Even though he does not address these specifically in the rebuttal that you'll hear today, they're important to understand in terms of context. So let's briefly recap each of them before we present the audio of Garrison's rebuttal. So here goes. First, NBC chose to introduce two convicts to refute the testimony of Vernon Bundy. As you recall, Vernon Bundy, along with Perry Russo, were the only two material witnesses that appeared at the pretrial hearing to offer testimony about Clay Shaw's involvement in the conspiracy. 
Vernon Bundy had a serious drug addiction. NBC introduced John Kanzler, otherwise known as John the Baptist, who was a burglar who met Bundy at the time in the parish prison in New Orleans. He offered testimony that his exchange with Bundy confirmed that Bundy was lying about seeing Shaw. The second convict was Miguel Torres, who had been in prison on a nine-year sentence for burglary as well, and who offered up the idea that Bundy told Miguel Torres while they were in the parish prison hospital that the only way he could be cut loose from his remaining five years on his prison term was to testify that he saw Clay Shaw together with others in the conspiracy. Obviously, the objective of presenting these witnesses was to further discredit Vernon Bundy as a reliable witness to observing, that is, seeing Clay Shaw and Lee Harvey Oswald together on the shore of Lake Pontchartrain. The interviews on their face were, in my opinion, compelling. (laughs) But remember, these guys were convicts. So let's withhold our judgment on what the truth is about this one until we get the later testimony at the grand jury. Next, they would have Jim Phelan lay out the story of Garrison's objectification of Perry Russo and the use of sodium pentothal and hypnosis and a lie detector test. And of course, as you have already heard that story on the previous episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Using Jim Phelan from the Saturday Evening Post and Jay Katz, who was an associate professor of law and an associate professor of clinical psychology at Yale University, they laid out a narrative that strongly suggested that they had led Russo into the testimony that he ultimately made. The inference being that most of the elements of the story that were so damning to Shaw were made up. And Phelan took the extra shot at Andrew Shambra. Professor Katz commented on the manner in which the hypnotic sessions were conducted, and, in the end, concluded that there was not sufficient attempt by the interviewer to separate fantasy from truth in Rousseau's mind. All of this together was a torpedo directly to the bow of the investigation. They would move on and tell a damning story of Perry Rousseau's first polygraph test conducted by Roy Jacobs, a polygraph test held on March 8th. They would go right to the core of it, they would state that Rousseau's answers to some of the very first questions indicated deception criteria, and the test was then cut short. He would answer yes to questions of whether he knew Clay Shaw and Oswald, and deception was present, according to NBC. More to come on this one, too. NBC tells the rest of the polygraph story this way, that the remaining list of questions was then snatched away from Roy Jacobs, the polygraph operator, and that the others attending the polygraph from the DA's office indicated to Jacobs that he should just forget what just had happened. And then, six days later, on March 14th, despite these results that occurred during the polygraph test, Rousseau would then be allowed to take the stand and make his allegations against Clay Shaw in the preliminary hearing. They would interview Ruth Payne and Jesse Garner and Lefty Peterson, a friend of Perry Russo's, and essentially use various evidence about Oswald's whereabouts, including other evidence of his activities in Dallas during September and October 1963, which would build a case that the infamous party at which the assassination plot was discussed 
with Shaw, Oswald, and Ferry present could not have taken place. Russo testified initially under objectification that the party either took place on September 16th or on a second occasion of interrogation saying something in mid-September. Lefty Peterson would testify that he was at the party, as Rousseau stated, and he never saw Clay Shaw at the party. Lefty Peterson would also offer testimony that the party happened on the same day as one of only two home football games that fall that Tulane played in New Orleans. He knew this because they had attended the game that day before going to the party. NBC would recap that the only two days then, the only two possible days that this could happen were October 4th and September 20th because Tulane played only two home football games that season on those dates. There is ample evidence that Oswald was in Dallas on October 4th. And then Ruth Payne also testified that she arrived with Marina in New Orleans and she was with them, the family, and stayed at their house the night of September 20th prior to her returning to Dallas and that Oswald was home that night, the night of September 20th. NBC then hones in on the idea that the dates given by Russo, based on other available facts, refute the idea that the meeting could have ever taken place on the dates that he stated, on September 16th, or a date in mid-September, and therefore no party and the whole case against Shaw collapses. Obviously, here they are anchoring their idea to the fact that Lefty Peterson nailed it down to the same date as the date of a football game. And if it didn't occur on September 20th or October 4th, then it could not have occurred. Ruth Payne and Jesse Garner would also offer that they had never seen Oswald physically unkempt. Highly credible witnesses, at least on this topic, saying this and effectively refuting Perry Russo's physical description of Leon Oswald. Recall that Russo, on the Monday, right after his initial interview with Chambra that weekend, would come to New Orleans and spend that Monday morning with a police sketch artist, adding a beer to a Lee Harvey Oswald picture. And after as many as 18 iterations of the sketch, they finally got one that morphed the original picture of Lee Harvey Oswald to this unkempt version of Leon Oswald, the person Russo saw at the party that night. NBC would tell the story of Clay or Clem Bertrand, tracing it from its origins with Dean Andrews in his initial testimony to the Warren Commission. And in that testimony, Andrews tells the story that Clay Bertrand was the person that called Andrews right at the time of the assassination, requesting that Andrews go to Dallas and represent Oswald in these murders. And NBC would then provide Shaw with a national venue to deny all charges that he was Clay Bertrand and to essentially perjure himself on national television, (laughs) answering questions that sounded like they might as well have been coming directly from his defense attorney, sounding as if they were asking them while Shaw had already taken a stand, something he would eventually do in the actual trial himself. So in some ways, I guess it was a warm-up. In their most egregious act, NBC would boldly state that Clay Shaw was not Clay Bertrand, and they knew it. 
because an NBC reporter had actually met the man who really was Clay Bertrand. They stated that they weren't going to reveal that person's name on national television because it was a pseudonym, ostensibly cover for a homosexual, but that they were going to provide the name to the Department of Justice. As we know now, they were referring to Eugene Davis, who later would testify under oath that he had never used that pseudonym. Finally, Sheridan could not engage with this whole matter without getting a minor starring role. He would place the capstone on NBC's allegations by recounting that he had undertaken conversations with Russo himself, and Russo would reveal to Sheridan that he had gotten himself into this mess, and the only way to get out would be to admit that he had been lying, and that to do so would be the equivalent now of committing perjury. And he was not willing to trade his own life for Clay Shaw's. Well, that was not exactly the words that Sheridan recounted, but that was the essence of it. But let's not put any words in Walter Sheridan's mouth. It's worth listening again to exactly what he said, what Rousseau told him. And so here it is. In my conversations with Perry Rousseau, he has stated that his testimony against Clay Shaw may be a combination of truth, fantasy, and lies. He said he wishes he had never gotten into this, but now he feels he has no choice but to go through with it. He said that he's afraid if he changed his testimony that Garrison might indict him for perjury. He said, suppose Clay Shaw is convicted and gets 20 years and goes through his appeals and he's sitting down there in prison. I might just call from wherever I am and say, bring your film crews down. I've got something to say. On one occasion, Russo said, the hell with truth, the hell with justice. He said, you're asking me to sacrifice myself for Clay Shaw, and I won't do it. The JFK conspiracy of the case of Jim Garrison will continue after station identification. They would make fun of Garrison and portray him as some kind of eccentric related to the decoding of information in Oswald's address book and a notebook which Shaw had. And how one number in each, when decoded, absolutely corresponded to Jack Ruby's phone number in Dallas, obviously then tying Shaw, Ruby, and Oswald all together. A clearly damning thing if it was true. Well, NBC would offer up an expert to refute that there was any connection between these two disparate numbers. The discussion was stuff that the average layman just rolls their eyes about, the decoding of secret messages and deciphering. It was too complicated for the average layman to understand during a few minutes of conversation on national television. And in my opinion, all it really accomplished was to confuse the audience. Oh, and we can't forget the bribery charges leveled by Alan Babuff against Louis Ivon and Lynn Loisel, two investigators in the DA's office. This is a great story, and I won't spoil it by getting into the details, but this incident is set to be covered in a future episode. As you recall, Alan Babuff was a friend of David Ferry's and essentially a roommate at times at Ferry's apartment. 
Boboff also accompanied Ferry on the infamous trip to Houston to go skating on the eve of the assassination. NBC would say that they interviewed many witnesses who were afraid to testify about the pressure and the tactics deployed by Garrison's DA's office. They interviewed Sandra Moffat, who was a friend of Perry Russo, someone who had been at David Ferry's apartment with him. All of this indicating that they were placed under pressure to testify and to persuade these witnesses using various means, including economic support, as Moffat would attest to in the NBC special. They would circle back and have Miguel Torres tell the story that the DA's office attempted to pressure him into saying that he had been solicited by Shaw to engage in homosexual activity and that they also wanted him to testify that Shaw also went by Claire Clem Bertrand and Torres knew it. They would tell what appeared to be a compelling story that members of the DA's office approached John Kanzler or John the Baptist to plant evidence in Shaw's apartment. And without telling him why, he would ask and they would admit that the whole thing was about the Kennedy assassination. They would interview the sleazy operator Fred Lehmans of a New Orleans Turkish bathhouse who initially identified Clay Shaw and Oswald at his bathhouse together later recanting such an allegation on the NBC white paper show, with the entire theme of the conversation implying that if Garrison could help him obtain a lease and to provide some capital, namely $2,500, to start a private club there in New Orleans, that he would provide favorable testimony. Helpful answers is probably the better term as they described it. Sadly, this liar was sanitized by NBC. Who knows what the truth was, as this individual was clearly in the same class as Dean Andrews. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself uh, here on this one. It was so bad that this guy even gave a statement on national television that he had asked NBC for money in exchange for the NBC interview. And of course, NBC said no. All of that timely revealed on the NBC white paper show itself. What Fred McGee from NBC said at the end pretty much summed up their objectives. So rather than recounting it in my own words, I'll just play it again, Sam. Now we cannot say that the murder of John F. Kennedy did not happen the way Jim Garrison says it did. We cannot say he does not have the evidence to prove it. We can say this. The case he has built against Clay Shaw is based on testimony that did not pass a lie detector test that Garrison ordered, and Garrison knew it. One prospective witness admitted in advance he was going to lie. Members of Garrison's staff, in trying to strengthen the case against Shaw, have threatened and offered inducements to potential witnesses. The results of his four months of public investigation have been to damage reputations, to spread fear and suspicion, and worst of all, to exploit the nation's sorrow and doubts about President Kennedy's death. Jim Garrison has said, let justice be done, though the heavens fall, we seek the truth. So do we. Good night. Without further ado, let's listen to episode 165 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. The 
following time period has been made available to District Attorney Jim Garrison of New Orleans to reply to an NBC News program broadcast on June 19th. In that program, NBC News examined some of the methods used by Mr. Garrison in his investigation of what he charges was a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. Except for the opening and closing announcements, this program has been prepared under Mr. Garrison's sole supervision. Mr. Garrison. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about truth and about fairy tales, about justice and about injustice. In the months to follow, you're going to learn that many of the things which some of the major news agencies have been telling you are untrue. You're going to learn that although you are citizens of the United States, information concerning the cause of the death of your president has been withheld from you. In the months to come, you will learn to your own satisfaction that President Kennedy was not killed by a lone assassin. You will learn that there has been and continues to be a concerted effort to keep you from learning these facts. And you will learn, I assure you, that what I have been trying to tell you and what I'm telling you tonight is true. As children, we become accustomed to hearing fairy tales. They're always pleasant stories, and they're comforting to hear because good always triumphs over evil. At least, this is the way it is in fairy tales. Fairy tales are not dangerous for our children and are probably even good for them up to a point. However, in the real world in which you and I must live, fairy tales are dangerous. They're dangerous because they're untrue. Anything which is untrue is dangerous. And it is all the more dangerous when a fairy tale becomes accepted as reality simply because it has an official seal of approval, or because honorable men announce that you must believe it, or because powerful elements of the press tell you that the fairy tale is true. The conclusion of the Warren report that President Kennedy was killed by a lone assassin is a fairy tale. This does not mean that the men on the Warren Commission were aware at the time that their conclusion was totally untrue, nor does it mean necessarily that these men had any sinister motives. It does mean that the conclusion that no conspiracy existed and that Lee Oswald was the lone assassin is a fiction and a myth and that it should be brought to an end. The people of this country don't have to be protected from the truth. This country was not built on the idea that a handful of nobles, whether located in our federal agencies in Washington, D.C., or in the news agencies in New York, should decide what was good for the people to know and what they should not know. This is a totalitarian concept, which presumes that the leaders of our federal government and the men in control of the powerful press media constitute a special elite, which by virtue of their nobility and their brilliance, empower them to think for the people. Personally, I would rather put my confidence in the common sense of the people of this country. The truth about the assassination of the president has been concealed from you long enough. Those forces which are fighting so hard today to tell you that they have examined the Warren report and that everything is fine and that our investigation has uncovered nothing are not merely going to lose this fight. They have already lost it. Now let me tell you why President Kennedy was murdered and how he was murdered. 
I also want to give you a few examples which will show you how the conclusion reached by the Warren Commission is totally impossible. President Kennedy was assassinated by men who sought to obtain a radical change in our foreign policy, particularly with regard to Cuba. You'll recall that under President Kennedy, the Cold War began to thaw, and there were new signs of an effort on the part of the Soviet Union and ourselves to understand each other. On the map, this appears to be merely a large island off the coast of Florida. But for many men, it meant a good deal more than this. In 1963, a great variety of interests existed, which not only desired an American-supported invasion of Castro's Cuba, but took it for granted that it was inevitable. In the minds of many men, this island represented a tremendous emotional landmark because they had steered their courses toward it for so long and with such intensity. In the fall of 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. It was followed by a pronounced new attitude towards Cuba on the part of the United States. Cuba, after this, was no longer regarded as an enemy and was no longer regarded as fair game for those men who, for one reason or another, focused their attention on this island. The new signs of understanding between Russia and the United States continued to develop. In June of 1963, President Kennedy, addressing students at the American University in Washington, told them, we breathe the same air as the Russians. He said, we should try to live together in peace on this earth. Well, at this point, some individuals transferred their hostile attention from Fidel Castro to John F. Kennedy. They planned the president's assassination, and they planned it well. The evidence indicates that he was shot at from two different directions in the rear, and also from the right front. We know that shooting was coming from two separate directions in the rear because the president and Governor Connolly were hit in the back within a split second of each other. And this necessarily had to happen with two bullets coming from two different rifles. We know that the president was being shot at from the grassy knoll area on the right front because most of the people in Dealey Plaza heard the shots coming from there and because at least one of the president's wounds was an entry wound from the front, and because men were seen running from the grassy knoll area immediately afterwards. That's why the idea of Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone assassin of the president is a fairy tale and should be brought to an end. If you, the people of the United States, will learn the truth that the president was assassinated by men who were once connected with the Central Intelligence Agency, of course, this might reflect on the dignity of the CIA. But I happen to believe that our form of government is strong enough to survive the truth. I believe that you are entitled to the truth about how your president was shot down in the street and how it was done. Instead, some of the most powerful news agencies we have in our country have worked hard to convince you that everything is all right. They do not tell you that Lee Harvey Oswald's fingerprints were not found on the gun which was supposed to have killed the president. And they do not tell you that nitrate tests exonerated Lee Oswald from the actual shooting by showing that he had not fired a rifle that day. 
And they do not tell you that it was virtually impossible for Oswald to have taken his fingerprints off the gun, hidden the gun, and gone down four flights of stairs by the time he was seen on the second floor. Above all, they do not tell you of the overwhelming eyewitness testimony that shots were coming from behind the stone wall on the grassy knoll. In a choice between official dignity and the truth, dignity was given priority, and so you have not received the full truth. This is why there continue to be hundreds of documents still hidden from your eyes and classified as secret, and some of them bear such titles as Lee Harvey Oswald's Accessibility to Information about the U-2, the Central Intelligence Agency's dossier on Lee Harvey Oswald, and the CIA file on Jack Ruby. You have not been told that Lee Oswald was in the employ of United States intelligence agencies, but this was the case, and so I am telling you. Why, this young, uneducated man had learned to speak Russian even before he left the Marines, and there's only one way he could have learned that. Oswald had a higher security rating than his buddies in his Marine unit. During 12 hours of questioning, to give you another example, 12 hours of questioning after the assassination, there is no transcript of Oswald's statements available for you to look at. Now, it doesn't matter where you live. If somebody in your town steals a 1928 Hupmobile, what he says is written down when he's questioned. However, when the man who, is just, who has just killed the President of the United States is questioned for 12 hours, no transcript is available. There's nothing for you to look at. And believe it or not, one of the explanations given is that the room was too small to include a stenographer. And here's something else. This case has more accidental fires, more burning of paper, than any murder case in history. For example, when Oswald was questioned by a federal agent in August of 1963, the notes of the interview were later burned. You cannot see the notes made by Commander Humes concerning the president's autopsy because he burned them too. One of the questioners of Lee Harvey Oswald during the 12-hour session burned his notes. And similarly, when the when the Warren Commission contacted the State Department and said, with regard to Exhibit 948, we noticed that a one-page message from the CIA containing secret information is supposed to be attached to this, this file and it's missing. Would you please furnish us with a copy of this missing secret document? The answer given to the Warren Commission was that the secret message about Oswald from the CIA was accidentally destroyed while being thermofaxed. This spontaneous combustion, incidentally, occurred the day after the president's assassination. I'm not even going to bother to dignify the foolishness which Newsweek and NBC and some of the other news agencies have tried to make you believe about my office. I've been district attorney of New Orleans for more than five years. And we have never had a single case reversed because of improper methods on the part of our staff. Nor do we rush to judgment on half-baked evidence. And the proof of that is the fact that in more than five years, 
Not one defendant has walked out of the courtroom in a murder case with an acquittal. Nor have we lost a major case in five years. Then what is their game? Their game is to fool you. These people want the investigation stopped. They don't want a trial at all. Please believe me. They don't think we're wrong in our investigation. Obviously, if our investigation was as haywire as they would like to have you think, then you would not see such a coordinated barrage coming from the news centers in the East. Why are they so concerned? Why is it that they cannot wait until the trial comes in order to learn what the facts are? Why are they so anxious to have their own trials they know very well that the witnesses they're presenting to you have not been testifying under oath, that they're not being cross-examined as they would be at a trial, and that the opportunities for a timely rebuttal by the state of Louisiana, which would exist at a trial, have not been provided in their untrue presentations. They know this. In my considered judgment, there has been an effort to prejudice in advance the potential jurors in the trial of this case. As a matter of fact, the National Broadcasting Company has already had the trial. The defendant was found innocent, and the district attorney was convicted. They announced across the nation that my methods were improper. But as their stories, one by one, turn out to be false, they do not reveal this to you, but simply search, hopefully, into new areas. For example, Newsweek magazine had a feature article saying that my office attempted to bribe a man named Boba. It later turned out that his story and their article was totally untrue, and the tape which Newsweek described had been altered. The police investigators in my office were found innocent of any wrongdoing in a serious investigation conducted by the police department. However, Newsweek has made virtually no mention of that, Similarly, in its recent effort to make you think that my methods are improper, NBC announced coast-to-coast coast that it had located the real Clay Bertrand, that an NBC man had talked to him. This made every newspaper in the country, and it inferred once again that in addition to using terrible methods, we were off on a wild goose chase. Now, when it turned out that this was a total fabrication, and the man whom NBC identified as the real Clay Bertrand hotly denied ever using the name, there was only coast-to-coast -coast silence from NBC. NBC presented a professional burglar whom my office had just recently convicted and allowed him to make a plainly false presentation that we had tried to get him to climb into the defendant's apartment and plant evidence there. The inference, of course, was that this particular defendant was too lofty a character to participate in my nefarious schemes. However, recently, when we called him before the New Orleans grand jury so that he could tell all about our new venture into the burglary business, he took the Fifth Amendment when asked if his statement on NBC was true. Once again, this was followed by loud silence from coast to coast on NBC. As a matter of fact, 
The Warren Commission's inquiry into the assassination started off with a completely unacceptable philosophy for a democracy like ours. One of its stated objectives was to calm the fears of the people about a conspiracy. But in our country, the government has no right to calm our fears any more than it has, for example, the right to excite our fears about red China or about fluoridation or, or about birth control or about anything. There's no room in America for thought control of any kind, no matter how benevolent the objective. Personally, I don't want to be calm about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I don't want to be calm about a president of my country being shot down in the street. And I don't want to be calm about the fact that for reasons of public policy or national security or any other phony reason, the true facts have been withheld from the people of this country. If the day has come when it is possible to shoot our president down because some men disagree with his foreign policy, and the day has come that the moment his heart stops beating, other considerations take over which conceal the total truth from the citizens of the United States, then the day has come when we have ceased to be a democracy. I cannot believe that this is so, that the time has come in America when the people no longer control their country. Yet I, I must confess that I'm appalled by the, by the readiness with which some of the major press media have accepted the, the great fairy tale without hesitation, rousing from their stupor only when they have learned that a district attorney was violating all the rules of etiquette and digging up the truth. They're telling you that black is white when they tell you there is no evidence of a conspiracy. They have to know well the significance of the continued concealment of x-rays and autopsy pictures which, if revealed to you, would show that the president was hit by rifle fire from more than one direction. And they have to know well of the hundreds of documents which remain classified secret and concealed from your view. And they're making white black when they repeatedly state that my office is using proper methods. They have to know that no DA's office in the United States would dream of operating in the way they suggest. They have to know that for years I have been a strong defender of the rights of individuals. They have to know all of this, but they have lent themselves to the all-out effort to convince you that the matter's been looked into, and anyone who raises a question now is irresponsible or a troublemaker or an enemy of the people. What's that? You say that you are an American citizen and you want to see the autopsy x-rays and you want to see these hundreds of documents that uh, have been withheld from your view and you want to know why these vital notes always ended up being burned? What's the matter with you? Can't you take the word of these honorable men who've looked into it for you? Let me just give you one example that shows you how impossible the single assassination theory is, which shows you the enormity of the fairy tale which you're supposed to believe in. Now this is the Warren Commission's own diagram of the route of the bullet through Governor Connolly. 
The bullet had to take this route in order to cause the injuries which he received. Now, the important thing to keep in mind is that the Warren Commission itself concedes that if this same bullet was not the one which also went through President Kennedy, then there had to be someone else firing. And the reason for that, just to put it very simply, is that the Pruder films have shown that all the firing occurred in six seconds, and yet there were a total of eight wounds. Therefore, this one bullet has to cause seven wounds, because one missed and one was the fatal shot hitting the president. So by the Warren Commission's own admission, prior to hitting the governor, this bullet had to go through President Kennedy, who is sitting back here. Now, you'll notice that the Warren Commission did not attempt to include President Kennedy in the diagram. They could not, because the total impossibility of this bullet having gone through the president also would be too obvious. In other words, by the evidence of the Warren Commission itself, it is obvious that there was other shooting going on in Dealey Plaza. Consequently, the Warren Commission has officially concluded that before this bullet came down from the sky, as it had to, to hit Governor Connolly and all those different places, it entered President Kennedy's body from the rear and came out of his neck. I might add that the Warren Commission did not try to include the President's picture because that would have shown that the course of the magic bullet would have had to gone up in the air and come down again in order to end up hitting the governor. It is by selecting these little portions of each incident and by excluding other portions that the fairy tale is presented to you. However, if they, if they had to show in one diagram the bullet entering the president and then continuing through Governor Connolly, you would be able to see the total impossibility of this bullet causing seven wounds. Now, this is just one of many examples which which uh, show that the Warren Commission's conclusion is completely impossible. That bullet 399 is another example. The fact that uh, the cartridges in the Tippett case do not manage, match at all the bullets in Tippett's body, one after the other. If I had the total hour to reply, which NBC used to try and discredit my office, I would, I would be able to go into more matters. But let's sum it up by saying that it is completely impossible to uphold the single assassin theory if you look at it seriously. Anyone who has done their homework knows that the single assassin theory is totally impossible. In the final analysis, what has been done by the Warren Commission in its investigation is to, is to take this series of implausibilities and to attempt to prove to you that each one of them is at least mathematically possible. Each one of them is mathematically possible, but not probable. However, it is not mathematically possible for all of these series of implausibilities to have occurred. And this is what they ask you to believe. It's very much like telling you that it is mathematically possible, for example, for an elephant to hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. Of course, this is implausible. But what do they do? They produce an expert who says, yes, I have made a study of the situation, and uh, <clears throat> this is uh, not a full-grown elephant, 
And this is a particularly tough kind of daisy. And therefore, it was mathematically possible. Now, the official truth, as a result of such expert testimony, as a result of the creation of a series of mathematical possibilities, is now no longer what actually happened in Dallas, but what has been officially approved. Well, I say that the matter is not closed, not in this country. I say that the day has not yet arrived when the only reality is power, and the ideals on which our country was built are merely words printed on paper. I believe that those news agencies which have sought to imply that I would use improper methods to gain some sort of fictional political advantage have simply revealed their own cynicism. I believe that in this conflict between truth and power, and this is exactly what it is all about, that power cannot possibly smash truth out of existence. The people in this country will not let that happen. If we still live, in the same country in which we were born, and I don't think it's changed that much, if this is still the country in which, in the words of our Pledge of Allegiance, there exists liberty and justice for all, then this attempt to conceal the full truth from you, in the end, has to be a failure. Now, in this case, I've learned more about the human race than I really wanted to know. And I've learned more about some of our government agencies than I really wanted to know. And I've learned more about some of our press agencies than I cared to know. But I am still naive enough to believe that in America, the people make the decisions. Not a handful of men in the Washington and New York areas. And I believe that the people of America want to know the entire truth about how their president was shot down in the streets of Dallas. And I want to assure you that as long as I am alive, no one is going to stop me from seeing that you obtain the full truth and nothing less than the full truth and no fairy tales. Time for the preceding program was made available to District Attorney Jim Garrison of New Orleans. The program was prepared under his sole supervision it constitutes his reply to an earlier NBC News program examining some of the methods Mr. Garrison has used in his investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy. This program originated in the studios of WDSU-TV in New Orleans. Thank you for listening to episode 165 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>